want to welcome you to our services this morning. If you are visiting with us, you are truly honored guests, and I hope that we've made you feel welcome with your stay here with us, worshiping our God. We are at the end of our series of lessons dealing with the church, and it's been somewhat non-traditional from a standpoint that we're dealing with traditions about how we look at certain passages regarding the church. Before I actually continue with that thought, I wanted to make mention, however, with regard to um, our sister Wanda Barnes, her mom is in the hospital and is unresponsive, if, if I'm not mistaken, and I think she may be in Huntsville, um, according to what Phil just nodded. So please keep Wanda's mom in your prayers. Um, I think from what Phil just told me, it's her birthday today, so please do that. Um, when we're talking about the Lord's Church and we're looking at various teachings, it's almost as if when you get told something from the time you're born to the time you're growing up, it's the way it is. You know, cups go in this part of the cupboard, not over there. And then you get married and all of a sudden it's in the wrong place, right? You're familiar with things being done a certain way. And those things are traditions that somehow become ingrained in the way that we think, in the way that we, well, believe about life. And so we've been looking at the church and, and we're talking about when the church comes together and when it doesn't come together and our view of the practices and just the thoughts about church. And what we did last time over the last few weeks, we looked at various things like, well, the name of the church, membership, attendance, elders, deacons, preachers, we looked at a number of things from a standpoint, here's what tends to be traditions that had taken place over the last 2,000 years and what the scriptures actually reads. The problem is some of these things hit a nerve with us. And I say it's a problem because sometimes we, we get taught this way that is so ingrained within us that it is equated with truth and it's no different then when Jesus dealt with many of the Jews, particularly Pharisees, among others, with regard to traditions actually being thought as if they, they hold the same weight as the Word of God. And you can look at some of these traditions and all of a sudden they, well, when I say all of a sudden, over centuries or decades, these things become commands for us until we look more closely. But it's still hard to let go when we're talking about traditions. And so in similar fashion, when looking at some of the traditions and practices and discerning between them as we come together as a church, when we don't, and see what the scriptures actually say. And so I pray that this morning's lesson will allow for every one of us to really open our Bibles, look at actual contexts to what we're talking about with regard to these traditions. Here's the caveat. When we're talking about traditions, even in scriptures, is it not working? Let me see it. There we go. All right, sorry about that. And when we're talking about traditions, even biblically, we can talk about the fact that traditions sometimes come from scripture, and our practice becomes tradition from the teaching of scripture. But there are other times when it's not from scripture, it's from an opinion. The way we apply scripture, the way we interpret scripture in how we use hermeneutics that come to different conclusions. And that is why you go from church to church and you'll see different practices. And we talked about that in the earlier part of our series. And so we are talking about traditions from the opinion standpoint, not laws, right? So when we're talking about laws, we're talking about a commandment given and we're talking about a teaching that is explicit or something that is implied necessarily in Scripture. But we're not talking about that in this case. So we're talking about traditions based upon maybe an interpretation that is viewed upon from my vantage point or maybe from your vantage point as if it is commended or as if it is expressly taught and what have you. So that's what our intention is, to look at some of these things as we close out this series of lessons. So... One of the very first things that you'll get, um, very familiar, and it's not limited to quote-unquote churches of Christ, is this very concept. So I'm going to take a poll real quick. How many of you heard this very quote, this very phrase, the five acts of worship? 
Okay, let me reverse the question. How many of you have not heard that phrase? Okay, interesting. Usually it's going to be younger or traditionally speaking, you're not in churches of Christ. So you won't necessarily hear that. Although there are various denominations that have used this very phrase as well. So you've got the five acts of worship, right? And what's interesting is if you go from place to place, the nuances of this will change depending on where you go. But there's a general consensus about these five acts of worship. This is when we come together, right? So we go to passages like Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16 about singing. And we go, okay, so that's when we, when we come together as a church, we sing because Scripture actually says to sing and make melody in your hearts, right? So we go, we, we use those texts and those passages, all right? Or when we go to praying, you know, here's the church. They're coming and they're praying for some of the men that, that uh, are in danger. Or when Paul tells Timothy, here's what I want you to do when, when you pray, right? So we go to those passages. Or in giving, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, right? We read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 about giving. We go to places like 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and chapters 9, and we read about giving, and so we incorporate that into our worship setting. And we even teach about the various uses that were provided for from the ways the church would take in monies, resources in this giving. Or we talk about preaching or teaching. And so we see the church coming together, uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, I want you to preach the word. And, and so these are passages. And by the way, I've actually go to websites, whether it's our website or other churches, that actually use these very passages and some of even the wordings for this worship service. And these are the passages you'll get. And then the Lord's Supper, whether it's Matthew chapter 26, Luke 22, the teaching from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 following, we use these references and say, here is the authority that we have for our worship services and how we come together. Here's the thing. We're actually going to look at every one of these passages. I was just going through them really quickly. And look at what are the actual context and how are we using it in light of that very context. So here's the thing, when we're talking about Bible authority, when we're talking about hermeneutics, here's the thing, when we start applying principles using the term Bible authority or using the term hermeneutics, why don't we, if these passages themselves do not necessarily imply or, or expressly teach an authoritative demand to worship in a corporate way, which is just a big word of saying what we're doing right now, right? We're all together as a group, right? If it's not expressly taught that way or um, implied that way, could we not then do the same for other things that would be regarded as worship? Okay, that's going to be what happens if we start taking things and, and using passages and someone takes that same principle, the same explanation of why that's authoritative on another passage that we would say, uh-uh, no way. Okay, look at Romans 12 real quick. And we're going we're gonna to go back to these passages that we just looked at in the previous slide. But go to Romans 12 as a means of this, this concept. So in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable and I believe the Greek is latrua. I have not even looked it up. It's been a long time, but I, that's the word I believe for worship, right? So my translation, New King James says, reasonable service. Some of your translations that you have, more literal, would say your reasonable worship, okay? And so some would say, well, okay, when we're coming together and we're going to worship God, and then they fill in the blanks, and it's things that are foreign to us. And some of these things are explicitly in Scripture, but nothing that we would practice. And I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute, just so that you get to see that contrast. I want us to actually go through these passages, all right? So let's look at singing. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 and see if, if we're talking about when the church comes together and there's singing as a church, all right? So Ephesians chapter 5. Here is the Apostle Paul, and what we, we're, we're talking about here in this text is how we are walking 
with God. The whole part of chapter 5 is our walk with God, and that we would walk in wisdom, we would walk in the light. And that because we are walking in the light, we are a new creation in God. And then notice what he says. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in futility of their mind. Having their understanding darkened, their understanding darkened, being all or alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of the heart. Okay? He says, don't walk like these Gentiles. They're walking in blindness and the hardness of their heart. Who being past feeling, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter. <laughs> 50 years old. It'll do it. All right. Let me go on over to the next chapter. All right. Make sure I'm... No, I went to Philippians 1. <laughs> Here we go. There we go. Verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, like those Gentiles, chapter 4, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Okay? So here's this context about our walk. He continues on in chapter 5 with this. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And notice what he does next in contrasting this. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. In contrast, be filled with the Spirit. So don't be drunk this way. Be drunk with the Spirit, he's basically saying. Being intoxicated with the Spirit. And and he goes on to say, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear of God. So notice what he's saying. Don't be filled with, with wine. Be filled with the Spirit of God. And in so doing, teach and admonish each other. Through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So he's saying, I'm wanting you to be filled with the Spirit of God, teaching one another. There's nothing in this text, not, not an iota of, hey, when you guys come together as a church, and you have your church service, worshiping God, sing. Okay, you're not getting that. What you're getting is, I want you to walk with God. And when you walk with God, don't be like the Gentiles who walk in the futility of their minds. I want you to be filled with the Spirit of God, teaching each other, admonishing each other through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul does very similarly, even though the context is different, when writing to the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 3. So in Colossians chapter 3, he says, I don't want you to be filled with the flesh, similar teaching to what is in Ephesians 5. I want you to be filled with Jesus Christ. And so he says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. So notice as we pick up in verse 16. Same sim or similar thought, even the context is different, similar thought to the church at Colossae as in the church at Ephesus. Verse 16 again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Just like let the spirit of God be filled in you, Ephesians 5, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing each other. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach and admonish each other. Similarly, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And someone would say, well, Mitch, when else would you do that but when you're together as a church? Well, you can do it all kinds of times when... when, when just a few of us get together, maybe whether it's at the potluck or at our house, we do some singing at our house or anytime. Not just going to be when you come together like in this setting that we have today. But it is a passage or these two passages are the passages that are used for congregational singing. Why not a passage about congregational All right, so that's what you get. Go on to praying. Look at Acts chapter 12. 
these are the passages that are, that are used um, in, in articles about what we do when we come together as a church, right? So in chapter 12, um, the picture is Herod causing persecution against the Lord's church. So now in verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. So there's two ways of looking at this by the church. Is it during a church service setting that this happened? Or is it just Christians who make up the part of the Lord's body, the church, praying for him that he's in prison? We're not given that situation. But that's the passage that we are used from a corporate standpoint. Or how about this? Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and particularly verses 1, verse 2, and verse 8. But you get the whole, you get the whole context there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at what he says. Paul says to Timothy, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And so he talks about that context of what he is saying. And then he says this in verse 8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so that everywhere can include a gathering together, like in a worship setting, but it could be anywhere, any place that you are, right? But he says, I want, I want you to pray for men everywhere, right? Lifting up holy hands. And so, again, it's not necessarily limited to the context of what we call a church service. So you can go on, the same thing. If we go on to the giving, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I want you to read this text. And this is what I was mentioning, oh, a few weeks ago in reference to the church when I was holding a meeting in India. So that... When I was visiting there, one of the, the men got before the congregation and was mentioning they had a church-wide Bible study on 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'm going to read these first few verses. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And... When I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So what he's saying is this collection is for needy saints and contextually it's for the saints in Jerusalem, in Judea, because of the famine that's been going on. We can read that in the book of Acts. We can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read verse uh, chapter 9 as well, verse um, 7 following, and read of that specific context. But what he was saying is, we're coming to you, Corinth, brethren. We're going to come to you, and you promised you were going to send monies to Jerusalem. So here's what I want you to do so that we are not made fools of because we have Macedonian brethren with us. And the last thing we want to do is have the Macedonians who were encouraged by you to give because of your promise of giving that they themselves were giving. But then we come to Corinth and there's nothing ready to take to Jerusalem. That's kind of embarrassing. That's the context in chapters 8 and chapters 9. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians. Read that with me in chapter 9 following. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the first five verses, notice what he says. Concerning the ministering to the saints, that's going back to the whole chapter 16 of, of last time, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago. That money that they stored up was ready a year ago. And your zeal stirred up was, um, has stirred up the majority. Yet, I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. So a year later, they're not ready yet. But now he's coming, and he's sending others ahead. Notice what he says. 
Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go ahead of time, to go to you ahead of time, and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. The whole coming together and laying by in store was for this particular need. That was a teaching. It was not explicitly, now when you come together as a church every Sunday, here's how I want you to, to give, and it's going to be for these reasons or anything. It's not that. What we have done is we've taken principles and we see how the giving was used, and that's how we practice it, by faith. And that's fine, except for what we get is we use these passages and make it as if this is a commandment from God, that that's what we are supposed to do from that very passage. That's where we run into problems. Because if we start doing it that way, we can take other scriptures and start applying it in similar fashion where it has nothing to do with the church service and bring them into the church service. And, we, and we'd be holding our hands up going, I don't know if that's authorized. But that's what we do with some of these passages. Or how about this? In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, Luke is narrating, here's what was happening when Christians came together. Right? He's telling a story, if I can use it that way, even though it's historical, telling a, a story of what was happening when Paul has passed through this region and so we read that passage in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. They, on the first of the week, they met with the saints. And we infer, and Scripture does in fact give implication to what is going on here that the church met on this first of the week. Very, very clear. So reading it, on the first of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, so very specific purpose, seems like the Lord's Supper to me, but that's what I would infer from the passage, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, continued his message until midnight. We don't know when they started. We know that they finished after midnight because we get more of the story here. And in fact, it says that there were many lamps in the upper room where they got, were gathered together. So that's the situation here. Not an actual, hey, I need for you guys to make sure that when you come together as a church that there's preaching. Otherwise, it's not going to be a biblical get together for the church and we go to passages like paul telling timothy preach the word be in season out of season convenience rebuke and so on and so forth so again paul telling timothy simply to go and preach god's word the lord's supper is one of the most explicit teachings that you actually have a teaching the church was coming together but not for the right reason and the apostle paul gives very chapter 22 and he gives the very teachings that Jesus gave about what this all represents right so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here's what he says and I want to read from verse 17 he says in verse 17 now in giving these instructions I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse so you're coming together but not for the right reason First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. So he's making it very clear this. There's a right way to go about partaking of this particular sacred meal, right? And so he goes through the institution of the Lord, what we call the Lord's Supper, and he goes and quotes from the Gospels itself. And then he says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so these are the things that we get. Most of these passages, we're not dealing with the context like the Lord's Supper, where you actually have it when the church comes together. Right? So is it off again? Oh, my word. I'm not even touching it. I don't know what's going on. We have a bad, bad uh, service this morning as far as the audio apologize so 
Here's what happens if we try to apply the, particularly those first four acts before when we talk about singing, uh, praying, giving, and teaching. If we try to use it from that vantage point and, and use other scriptures about the church, okay? Particularly when none of this is when the church comes together. But imagine we read a passage like Romans chapter 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And we say, okay, that is, that is an imperative in scripture. An imperative meaning kind of like a command. So now when we come together, everyone start holy kissing each other. Some of you laugh, right? But greet one another with a holy kiss. We could actually extrapolate from scripture and say, when you come into these doors, it is biblically authorized that you greet each other with a holy kiss, whatever a holy kiss is supposed to look like. I don't know about you, but I'd be kind of weirded out by that. And I grew up in Hawaii where we, it was very appropriate for the young men to kiss older women um, on the cheek. And that, come to the mainland, that's not a good thing always, right? So, but imagine if that became a practice. And then imagine if for generations we are ingrained in this practice and now someone comes to this congregation and, and you greet them with a holy kiss. And you're like, whoa, that's what we're supposed to do biblically. And you're like, wait a sec, I've never practiced that. See, it'd be comfortable for you if you're already used to it. You've been raised in it from the time you were a child, right? But imagine we actually tell them that's Bible authority. And, and someone would say, Bible authority, this is a letter. And contextually, the Apostle Paul is saying, these brethren greet you, these brethren greet you. This is about a greeting across the miles amongst brethren, right? But yet some could use that very line of reasoning. Or how about this? In John chapter 13, the very night Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, right? That night he begins by washing the feet of his disciples. And imagine there are church uh, foot washing churches, right? They are. And some of them believe we're supposed to be practicing it, by the way. Imagine if that became a practice here. And what we would tell them is, hey, listen, this is the night when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. If it's good enough for Jesus, in fact, we can go to Jesus' words. So let's go to Jesus' words. This is now in red letter, so you know it's authoritative. So we go to John 13, and we're going to read what Jesus himself said, and then we're going to go and do likewise because we're going to follow the very words of our Savior. Jesus said in verse 14 of John 13, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now imagine if that is incorporated. I would dare say we all miss the boat unless there's someone here that has done foot washing in the name of worship. And so we start going, well, contextually, that, that was nothing to do with the church service. Or how about this? We were reading in Acts 20, in verse 7. Scripture says they met in an upper room. Right? And some would say, but ah, uh, Mitch, that principle of exclusivity is when it's, in fact, just exclusive. We know the church met in other places, not just in an upper room. Here's what is explicit. They partook of the Lord's Supper, right? And when you read of it, it's the only time a time is ever mentioned in Scripture. So the, that principle of exclusivity where if it's exclusive, all else are not authorized, only this. Then some can come along and say, then why don't we practice partaking the Lord's Supper at night only? We would retort saying, contextually, it's not the time that's important, right? It's that we came together as a church on the first day of the week, just like Scripture had revealed, but the time is not important. It's that we come together. But interesting, some will go so far as to say, at night only, because we're taking the Lord's supper, not the Lord's breakfast or lunch. And some go on even further on a very nuanced level. So here's the thing. 
These things, you would say, no, we don't have to be doing that. But there are people that have taken these very passages and used them and bind them upon one another. So if we go back to those passages that we had looked at in the, in the previous slides, when it comes to singing, what is it about that it says explicitly when you come together as a church? That that's what you're supposed to do. Here's what I'm not saying. Oh, well, I got to move on. There's one more point. You talk about a humdinger right here. Oh, my word. Okay, I'll get back to that point later on. First, first Corinthians 14, very explicit when the church comes together. And you've got individuals that are speaking in tongues. You've got individuals that are prophesying. And there's chaos at the church at Corinth. And amongst the chaos are women. And the question is, what is it about these women in 1 Corinthians 14? Because there's all kinds of application. And those applications are inconsistent among brethren. In some congregations, as soon as women walk in the door... They're quiet. Most women are not. not men too. <laughs> My point being is like when, when the Bible class is starting or when the worship service is starting, very quiet. Nothing is said. And we will read the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and get as literal as that passage says. And so let's read that passage. Because this is something I remember from the time I was preaching in Macon, Missouri. Um, very, very important subject matter to the men and women of the congregation there. 1 Corinthians 14. Look at what, what the apostle says. And by the way, there is a, there is a textual, make sure, textual um, debate as to the placement of these two verses. Verses 14 and, well, verses 34 and 35. It's missing in a number of manuscripts. And in the other manuscripts, it's actually found at the very end of the chapter. And so it's verses, what, you, what we get is verses 32, 33, and then 36. That's the way it continues on in some of these um, manuscripts that you get from, from the Greek. So in this particular case, though, looking at verses 34 and 35, here's what it said. Let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. By the way, there is no law of Moses about when the women are together like this. Um, so there is a law that was recognized. The question is which one? If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. That's explosive right there, especially in our modern context. Just after the service, if you don't mind, we'll get you. Um, very, very, very clear, right? Seemingly so. And so you have women that says, we're not going, as soon as we're in church, we're not going to speak. But some would say, here's the way we look at church. Church is not in session when we are broken apart from each other. When we go downstairs and we have Bible classes, the church has not come together. That's how some have taught the difference of the church. When the churches come together, when the churches not come together. And this time, we're all individually together, but separate groups. So we're not all the church. What's interesting about that is, that's something that we have come up as a way of distinguishing when the church comes together and when the church does not. Okay? It's something we've done. But that's... To do that, And so what we do is we give announcements, and typically what happens at the end of our church service, one of the elders or whoever's giving announcements is, okay, formally we're no longer a church. I mean, we don't say it in the exact words, but we, we distinguish it with words saying, we're done. Now that allows for, now that we're no longer the church together, even though we're, we haven't moved an inch from our seats, but now the church is no longer the church, and women can ask questions or make statements, and then they would not be violating this passage those are the practices that take place i'm telling you right now from someone who is outside looking in so all you have to do is say some magical words and all of a sudden the church no longer exists but every single soul has not moved one iota and they get confused these are the things that we're talking about these are subjects that we never really deal with openly because these are taboo you don't deal with these things because it sounds 
heresy. Sounds like apostasy. And brethren, if at all we are wanting to do is we want to know the truth. That's our goal in our walk with God. Not to veer off from the truth, but to confront the truth and deal with the truth as it's presented to us. And if we're using passages in a way that can be inconsistent, then what's, what's it stopping someone else from using it inconsistently? And then we just disagree with them on their application of it. So these are the things that we have to grapple with. And that's why when Will raised his hand, there's the open door for Bible study on these things. Questions, concerns, the, the dangerous ramifications, all of these things are important for us to deal with. So you've got this, right? This contrast with the women uh, in the worship service. But what's interesting if we continue on with this concept is, remember, it's, yeah, it, it's dying no matter if I turn it on. Sorry about that. So, oh, it's on again. <laughs> Please forgive our technical difficulties. All right. I'm gonna, this is really keeping me from being focused. If we were to take this concept very literally, then 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 is in direct contrast to Ephesians 5.19, to Colossians 3.16. Ephesians and Colossians are saying, teach and admonish each other through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which we, we don't typically think along those lines when we're worshiping in song. But some of the songs we sang this morning was an actual teaching and admonishing one another. I don't know if you were looking heavenward bound, closing your eyes, or looking at each other and teaching each other when, when those songs were available to us to sing. But that's what he's saying. If that's the case, then what, what are women to do? And can children do it? Because they, weren't, they were excluded from that, but women cannot. You see how technical and nuanced we can become with these very passages. We can get so technical that women, you're not allowed to sing and, and admonish one another because then you would be teaching and women are to keep silent. You can get that technical. So we need to try and study through some of these, these things to show any... Um, inconsistencies in our application to how we apply these particular passages all right so the passage as i see it personally and so from a teaching standpoint the whole passage in first corinthians 14 is about teaching right go from the very beginning prophecy and speaking in tongues those are both all teaching and he says when it comes to speaking in tongues and an unbeliever or someone that does not have the gift comes into the assembly, then they're not going to be edified by this teaching. So if, there are, if there's no one to interpret your speaking in tongues with this spiritual gift, remain silent. That's what he says. He also says, if you're prophesying, don't let more than two or three prophesy at one time. For us, in our modern vernacular, imagine if Phil was speaking and I'm speaking, the assembly would be very different. The picture I get is Phil might be speaking over here and maybe uh, Don is speaking over there. And, and, and so he, he says, no more than two or three at, at one time. And then take turns. Let all things be done decently and in order, he goes on to say. All right? So... When it comes to the women then, it is my understanding, if you go back from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 following, about the role of women and then the, the gifts that are provided to men and women that belong in the Lord's church, that the women were not supposed to usurp teaching over the men, right? It's not that they couldn't speak, but the way it's in the Greek, it's like when you are teaching and, and there's the men present, you keep silent, that's the way it seems to me. Now, I could be wrong, right? But that's what it seems like. It's, it's in context to women or to the church teaching, and these women were told to keep silent during those moments. And so that's a the, that's the picture. And I'm telling you, you can open up your commentaries, even amongst brothers in Christ that preach the gospel for many, many decades, and you'll get different nuances of what I've just said some of whom may agree with me, some of whom would disagree with me. And here we are, still having to have fellowship 
and worship God with these differences. That's the reality. We'd like to think that we agree with everything, with every nuance, but I guarantee you, just as surely as I gave this sermon this morning, there's things within each point that you're like, I don't know if I totally agree with what you just said about this or that. I get it. And just as surely as I'm going to do my very best to teach nothing but the truth of God's word, you have someone else doing the very same thing with a different conclusion than Mitch in this congregation, let alone other congregations of God's people. That's when the church comes together. The next point is very quick, very simple, but very needful. It's when the church doesn't come together. Okay? How do we view the church? Because what we've done in the name of, of Bible authority and in, in the use of hermeneutics is talk about the contrast between the individual and the church. The church is not the individual. The individual is not the church. And I would agree with that. It's not. All right? When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or Romans chapter 12, we talk about the church synonymously being the body of Christ. And one body, many different members. And so Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, different contexts, uh, even though it's overlapping and very similar in ways, but it distinguishes the individual within the body of Christ from the body itself. But that said, and that's the reason why I had Mark read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. That said, the way individuals look at the church, whether it's in the world today, like when we do certain things, like when individuals among us go and pass out coats in our community, or when the individuals among us go and help the needy in our community or the homeless in the Nashville metro area, we make the distinction it is individuals and not the church doing this work. Individuals among us going to the jails, and there's what, about 20 or 25 of us that go to the jails? But it's not the church. We make that distinction. But here's how the passages are used and see if there's a, uh, an overlap, if you will, in how it's used. In Romans chapter 16, in the greetings from one another, notice this in Romans 16. Go, go to that passage with me. We're about done. See if we can kind of wrap this up here. In Romans 16, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says to the church at Rome, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Well, okay, who are we talking about? Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So, okay, that's one way of looking at that. Go on down. Verse 21 following. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and, and Sospater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle or letter, greet you in the Lord. And then Gaius, or Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church. However he's hosting, he's hosting the church. I don't think he's hosting them at a church service. I think he's just hosting all kinds of Christians that make up this particular congregation. They greet you. Okay? That's one way. More easily seen is here in Acts chapter 8. And I want you to look at Acts chapter 8. And then we're going to wrap everything up from this. So, Stephen has is, is been killed. Now, persecution is coming against the Lord's church. So, Acts 8 verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen's death, and at that time a great persecution rose against the church which was at Jerusalem. So whatever this church is, it's at Jerusalem, and it's going through persecution. They've not come together as a church. It is in reference to them. And notice how it's regarded. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The church is scattered. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, made a great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. How? Going into every house. So while those are individuals, individual homes that he's going into, it is part of a whole. And the whole concept of the way, the, the vernacular of the way the word church is used as an assembly of individuals or simply as a group of all the saved, 
in one geographic region or all the saved of all time. We use it in various contexts, very fluid word. That's how we see it here. He's going from house to house and he's persecuting the church, even though the church is not being gathered together. And here's what I mean by that then. You have individuals who are not part of our fellowship. They're out in the community here in Franklin. And if they hear, well, I'll give you an example. Not this, not today, but next Lord's Day, our small group, Michael Collins' group, we're going to Brookdale, and we're going to have uh, hymns. We're going to sing hymns with the residents that are there at Brookdale. And from their vantage point, you know what they'll probably put in their, their calendar? It's the Franklin Church, Franklin Church of Christ that's coming. That's just the way they would recognize. The world uses terms to say, you know, they're Christians. They can look at people who we would not consider to be New Testament Christians, and the world would say, those are Christians. So the terms that are used, we can distinguish, and we understand what's being said. But even biblically, when you read these, this biblical passage is not when the church comes together, but when the church is not together, and, they're going, and yet the church is being persecuted house to house. It's used in various fluid contexts. So... What does all that mean then? Here's the big takeaway. And I asked a lot. I mean, otherwise I'd have to break this into more, more of the series. But I wanted to put them all together in, in very succinct ways. What we practice when we come together in our singing, our that we're doing it like this. It's biblical. If you, you can use that term if you want. But that doesn't mean that all the passages that we are using to say it's commanded are expressly commanded. Because they're not. It is a stretch on our part. It is not good exegesis on our part. It's not responsible exegesis on our part to look at a passage and parse it out and come away with it's commanded. Right? And that's very important for us. If we're going to be good Bible students and we're sharing the gospel with, with our neighbors, and then we have people who are saying, yeah, but I disagree with you on these, we need to be good Bible students about it. We cannot just simply grab scriptures from the Bible and just throw it at them going, I've got all these Bible passages. And then they pick them apart contextually saying, you're talking about doing it in a church service, but those passages have nothing to do with a church service. And you're imposing it upon us to say that it's a part of a church service. So that's something you have to be wary of, right? Here's, here's the um, ramifications of what happens when, when we do that. If we take a narrative, right? And here's a narrative, Matthew chapter, chapter 26, verse 27. The narrative is... And Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. That's a narrative, not a command to, to actually have one cup. When you come together as a church, use one cup. That's very different than the narrative. This was the gospel writer, Matthew, stating when Jesus took the cup, he blessed it, and he said, take. Right? If we were to use the same hermeneutics, we'd come away with like our brethren that are what we call one cuppers. And telling us... Bible says a cup, that's what we should use. And we say, no, 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 context. It's the content of the cup. Or when a teaching is broad and we narrow it more than it should be narrowed, or if it's narrow and we broaden it more than it should be broadened. For instance, 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, lift up holy hands. How many of us in this room lifted up our hands when we prayed this morning? Holy hands. We can take it literally, we can be metaphorically, but how are we going to do it? Because everything else, some will take literally, depending on what passage of Scripture they are believing in. We have to be careful, because if we are not careful, it opens the doors for other people using the same line of reasoning on other passages like holy kissing, foot washing, and so on and so forth. They could do that. So brethren, that's our series that we're looking at. We have commandments that are very expressed in Scripture. 
We can read those, whether it's in the Old Testament. We can even read New Testament commands. Well, what do those commands actually say? And stick to those commands and what they actually say. And when there's narration, it's just that. It's narration. And if we say, but we were practicing what we read that took place in the first century, that's great. That's good. But turning that into a, thus saith the Lord said, and he commanded, got to be careful. We are wanting to be good students of scripture and do all things in Bible ways, we say. To be silent where the Bible is silent. Well, then we need to be silent when the Bible is silent about it. To speak where the Bible speaks. Well, speaking contextually where the Bible speaks, yes, that's exactly what we want to do. For some of us, this is heavy hitting. It's stepping on toes. It's hitting a nerve. I get it. My goal is not to do that. My goal is to teach what Scripture actually says. So receive it that way, brethren. Receive it to the glory of God for the edification of the body of Christ. Now, we have another tradition. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about when you come together as a church, at the end of your sermon, give an invitation. But it's a tradition and a good tradition. It's a great opportunity for you who are visiting with us to know that you are invited, if you are not a child of God, to die with Jesus this morning. And while it is a tradition that you don't see actually practiced at the end of a sermon in Scripture, it is a very good one because from time to time there are souls who recognize they are lost in their sin. I was one of them. And after that invitation was given, even though I didn't know it was an invitation, and even though it took place after the church had formally dispersed, I was buried with Christ. And you can be too. You can be buried with him. That's biblical teaching. Raised to walk in newness of life. That's biblical teaching. That you will be added to the Lord's church by him. Acts 2, verse 46 and verse 47 in particular. And so if you're here this morning and you want to be added to the Lord's church, by the Lord himself. That can happen. And brethren, if you need our prayers, another tradition is come forward. We'll pray with you. We'll pray for you. Why don't you do that together now as together we stand and sing.